Can you imagine if Ronaldo and Messi declined to participate in the World Cup? We'd be camped out on their doorsteps until we got some clarity. But this World Cup will go on without Hagerberg. And I think she'll regret not being here. Maybe not now, but later. She may never get another chance. Sometimes the best way to affect change is actually from the belly of the beast. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This is a special episode coming to you from Paris, France, and the Women's World Cup. Joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire, Monsieur Mossy. What allez-vous? Bonjour, or as Rob Stone would say, bonjour. <laughs> Well, uh, we talked about it, uh, we planned for it, we dreamed of it, and here it is. It is upon us. We are on. We were recording this on the eve of the uh, first game, and the Women's World Cup kicks off uh, with France versus uh, South Korea. Uh, how has your stay been so far? We've been here about a week. I've been to Paris before. I already thought it was the most amazing city in the world, and the past five, six days have only reaffirmed that. It's been incredible. Despite being very busy preparing for the tournament, I've actually found time to do a lot of things. I've gone to the top of the Eiffel Tower, the top of the Arc de Triomphe. I went on a cruise of the Seine River. I went to Luxembourg Gardens, the Pantheon, Sorbonne University. It's, it's been amazing. Really? You've yeah. been having the time of your life over here. Yep. Oh, man, an American in Paris. Uh, how was, uh, which was, of all, of all of those things, what was the best part so far? I think the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. Yeah. That was it's incredible. Cool, huh? Yeah. Well, for those of you that haven't seen our incredible set, and you will see it over the next month uh, if you tune in for a minute or if you tune in for every single minute, uh, it, is, it is pretty spectacular. Uh, we, are, uh, we have one of the, the great uh, sets, I think, in, uh, in sports history. Obviously, the iconic Eiffel Tower that you mentioned right behind us. And we light this candle Friday night. And uh, as you said, we've been here about a week. We've done some a lot of rehearsing, uh, getting everything right. And this is the result of not just months, but years of work coming to fruition from a lot of different people uh, to, get us, to get us ready to give America the, uh, the story uh, and the pictures and the aesthetic uh, that this tournament uh, and the sport deserves and that we are accustomed to when it comes uh, to Fox. So certainly... Uh, Check it out. We recognize that, that, uh, that, and I've said this before, there are people that are going to tune in. Uh, there are people, for, for everything, there are going to be people that are going to kind of tune in as the World Cup progresses and something catches their eye, a, a player, a team, a story or something like that. And there will be some people that just say, no, nah, I'm not going to tune in. Either soccer people that just don't want to watch women's soccer uh, or just non-soccer people. And uh, it's... It's too bad because you're going to miss a party. You're going to miss something really, really interesting in terms of what uh, is, is about to happen. We couldn't be prouder about the uh, opportunity to, uh, to bring it to you. How has your French uh, helped you over the week? And are you, are you feeling good about the way you are communicating? Because I know absolutely nothing. Well, as I told you back in L.A., I speak it uh, pretty well. Uh, but it's hit or miss whether I can understand a French person speaking to me. And what I've found is that people like waitresses and cab drivers who are used to dealing with tourists, they instinctively know to speak a little bit slower. So I've actually had success with those people having actual conversations back and forth. 
But sometimes a random person on the street asking for directions, it can be rough. I can always convey my initial thought right. well, but then they start talking back, bah, 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 and you know, sometimes I don't understand, and I have to transition to English. And then they give you this look of, why did you even waste my time pretending like we were going to have a conversation in French? Well, that's my next, next question. As, as we know, every country and culture has stereotypes. And the, the stereotype of the French is that they do not suffer fools. They are less than helpful, shall we say. Uh, and... Uh, and and I don't know uh, snobby about uh, their culture and people trying to come to their culture and to their language especially. Have you found the stereotypical French person in terms of their reaction to you as an American or just as a tourist in general? No, I mean one or two bad moments, but 99% of my interactions have been very positive. And it was the same in Russia, frankly. I yeah. think during a World Cup, there is a spirit in a country of wanting to be hospitable and and putting their best foot forward. And so everybody's been super friendly. A couple of times, I've asked for directions, and the person stopped there for like five minutes, looking at their phone, trying to figure out exactly the right way to go. And so it's been, it's been very great. good so far. That's well, like I said, we are incredibly fortunate to be able to do this and the area that we're we are in on a daily basis. And one of the reasons. We, we come here early is to, is to acclimate and also to give time to just figure out logistics and all that kind of stuff. But this is where the tournament starts, and this is obviously where the work starts. Tell the people what your typical workday is uh, uh, during the World Cup. From an hour standpoint? Yeah, just in, just in general, what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, we, we have a lot of double and triple headers, long days, so and I have to get there several hours before even the first game to for meetings and such. And so I, yeah, I'm getting in there at like 9 a.m. every morning and not going to get out uh, most days till like 11 p.m. So it's, it's long days. Yeah, when we come in, you know, as, as talent, uh, that would be what myself and my other colleagues that are in front of the camera are. Uh, we, we come in, you know, stroll in late and walk in and we see Mossy hard at work uh, writing all of the words that many of us are going to say through the day and uh, doing the research uh, that's going to make us look like we know what the the hell we're talking about <laughs> on a day-to-day -day basis. And we couldn't do it with, uh, without you and so many men and women that are behind the scenes. To, but it's amazing what, what it takes to get us to look like uh, we, we know what we're doing. So I can't wait. It's going to be it's going to be fun. Uh, along those lines, uh, I did uh, write a State of the Union and uh, it's it has to do with uh, a big story. We've talked about it over the last uh, couple of months. It is a continual story. Uh, and so, are you ready to do this? Sure. All right. As always, start the pod off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this episode, it goes a little something like this. Greetings from Paris. Everyone's here. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone but Norway star Ada Hagerberg, arguably the best player in the world and the reigning Ballon d'Or winner. In case you haven't heard... She declined to participate. Why, you ask? Well, that's a good question, and I, I don't really know. She's failed to really crystallize exactly what it is that led to this decision, and more importantly, what exactly she wants done. Instead, we have this vague and cryptic generalizations that seem to boil down to Hagerberg doesn't like what she sees as institutionalized sexism, chauvinism, and inequality to women within the Norwegian Federation and the game in general. That's an admirable stance. But what specifically do you want, Ada? Keep in mind, the Norwegian Federation recently implemented a historic agreement for equal pay for the men and the women on its national team. Can you imagine if Ronaldo and Messi declined to participate in the World Cup? We'd be camped out on their doorsteps until we got some clarity. But this World Cup will go on without Hagerberg. And I think she'll regret not being here. Maybe not now, but later. 
she may never get another chance. Sometimes the best way to affect change is actually from the belly of the beast. The World Cup platform offers a global megaphone. It is powerful. Your voice will be heard and amplified every day, especially if you're a star like Hagerberg. It's just a pity she's going to waste this opportunity to really say something to the world on and off the field. All right. That is my State of the Union. I recognize that uh, as this World Cup kicks off, we're talking about somebody that isn't going to kick a ball. But she is a big enough star and an important enough star for us uh, to talk about this and for this to be a story, and it will continue to be a story for some of the reasons that I mentioned in the uh, State of the Union. What's your, what's your overall take on the fact that she's not here now that we are here and we recognize that we are going to do a World Cup without arguably the greatest player in the world? It's an amazing story. The only equivalent I can think of on the men's side is Johan Cruyff uh, playing in the 1978 World Cup in Argentina. And what's really struck me in reading the comments from the other Norwegian players is that, uh, if we're being honest, a lot of us don't follow women's soccer on a day-to-day basis. We sort of parachute in for a month every four years. So this feels like a fresh story for us. But she's been gone for two years, so a lot of the reaction of the players is, Really, you're asking about this still? I mean, it's we're, we're, we've kind of moved on. I mean, to use your Messi-Ronaldo analogy, what if Messi and Ronaldo had walked away two years before a World Cup? When the World Cup arrived, would we still be asking the players about this every day? I don't, I'm not so sure. So I think in that sense, it's irritated them. But, you know, it's understandable, like I said, from in our respect, because it is just an incredible story to not have the best player in the world in her prime playing in a World Cup. It is interesting. And, you know, I get the, uh, the incredible opportunity to work with some some really talented uh, and smart uh, and funny colleagues that uh, that just for the World Cup that I don't necessarily work with on a continual basis, uh, and the the women that you will see for the last for the next six weeks uh, are are pretty incredible. And whether it's people that you may have seen in the past in our coverage, like a Kelly Smith, uh, or whether it's something somebody new like Australian Kate Gill. Um, uh, you know, these types of players, Ari Hinkst, uh, these types of ex-players uh, and TV analysts right now, it's interesting to talk to them and just the incredible spectrum of reaction that we have to something like this. And while you only see what happens on on air and on our set, you know, some of the most interesting, if maybe not uh, appropriate for air type of conversations happen back uh, in our green room. And that's where you really get a lot of the the nuance and the depth and the really interesting perspective from a lot of these uh, uh, women that still work in the game, whether they're, they're coaching or whether they're doing uh, television. And, and their reaction to this is, is one of maybe I'm a little bit more confused the, than they are. But as you said, they've been dealing with it uh, and, and known about this for maybe a lot longer than the general public out there. But it is, as I said uh, a shame that we're not going to just from a pure soccer playing standpoint. And this isn't just a defender or a leader and a captain. This is a, an attacking player. And obviously our game is ultimately about scoring goals. And so to be deprived of this great goal scorer for Norway, it, it, it's a pity. The, the irony is that when we look at it from a, a, a tactical perspective uh, or an actual soccer perspective, which sometimes gets lost in this whole story, she wouldn't necessarily, as good as she is, you're gonna, your team is going to be better. But their problem isn't necessarily <laughs> scoring goals. Their problem isn't necessarily intact. They have other problems around the field. So 
would Norway all of a sudden be a contender with her on the field? I think that may be a little, stretching it a little bit, but still to not have somebody who is, is such a presence uh, on the field and to not have her uh, being able to voice it on a continual basis. It'll be interesting to see if and when she shows up during the World Cup, because there's there's certainly talk about her being involved in media and stuff and stuff like that, and maybe she goes the other route in terms of getting uh, her voice out there and talking about the things she wants to talk. Well, she plays her club football for Lyon, and right. that will be a common theme this month because it seems like every other great player in this tournament plays for Lyon, and that's an amazing story. Rory Smith wrote about it recently in the New York Times how they're actually the greatest club team in the world, men's or women's. Uh, but staying on that point, I've, I found it fascinating. I've talked about how this sport is consumed differently in the United States in terms of the relationship between club and country. And in talking to some of the American players we work with, they're incredulous that someone who doesn't represent our national team can win the Ballon d'Or. But that seems normal in the rest of the world where they value the club uh, side a little bit yeah. more. And so, yeah, and, and you would think that it, if you're going to be the quote-unquote best player in the world, this is the stage where you have to cement that, and she's bypassing that, and yet we have no problem continuing to refer to her as the best player in the world. So there's an interesting philosophical divide there in terms of how much you emphasize club versus country. Look, and I know I'm I'm demanding information because of what I feel is a lack of clarity, uh, and I'm I'm demanding that that and she has no responsibility to me or anybody else, but that's kind of what we do. But I would love her to, like I said, provide some clarity as to what it specifically is that she. Uh, is aggrieved by and what she wants changed rather than those generalizations that we have out there. If it's, I just hate the coach, then I hate the coach. If it's, I hate the federation, I hate the federation. It's because you uh, were mean to me and my, and my sister. Uh, her sister uh, has had a uh, had time with the national team too, and she also is not uh, not on that. Now, whatever it ends up uh, ends up being, it's just we 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 don't get that, and it's really. It, it, it's an interesting and fascinating story. It won't go away. As I said before, uh, and we'll end it with this with regards to this story, I, I do think that she'll regret it. And it's not that, that people won't, that she won't take pride in standing up for what she believes in, whatever that may exactly be, but you don't get a lot of opportunities to play in, in a World Cup. And when you're old and you can no longer function in your capacity as a player and you look back at opportunities missed, and we all have them. We all have uh, different regrets. I think deciding not to play in the world, and she might continue, and I think she will continue to go on to be a, a great player, but not having that moment, not having this moment specifically in uh, in France, I, I do think that she will uh, regret it, but we all have regrets, uh, regrets in life. The World Cup goes on. It is spectacular. There's plenty of stars, believe me. Uh, this, this World Cup is not contingent on whether... Ada Hegerberg is, uh, is involved or not. Anything else before uh, we move on, Masi? All right, let's move on and talk a little bit more in general about the World Cup. You are knee-deep in, in everything that's happening. As I said, we're recording this before the first game uh, happens where the hosts uh, kick, off, uh, kick off the event. Has anything changed in your mind over the, uh, over the past week or so with regards to teams that you're looking at, stories that you're looking at, or anything else? No, I mean, this is the deepest field in Women's World Cup history. Uh, it's fascinating the fact that the European champions, the Netherlands, the South American champions, Brazil, the Asian champions, Japan, and the Olympic silver medalist, Sweden, none of them are seeded teams at this World Cup. Uh, that tells you about the depth right now in the women's game, which is just increasing every day. 
And so I think it's going to make for a phenomenal tournament. I mean, it's uh, there are already a lot of teams and players I was interested in going in. And then just in the last week and doing more research on it, I mean, it's every group. There's multiple teams that I can't wait to watch play. I'm fascinated to see how Spain look, all the success they've had at youth level the last couple of years, and incredible qualifying campaign. A lot of people think it's been building towards this summer being the breakthrough for them. I mentioned the Netherlands with uh, Miedema and Martins. Uh, they have really one of the best attacks in the tournament. Australia, who... I uh, haven't had a great run in here, uh, their warm-up games, but they have so much talent there, Sam Kerr. Uh, so, yeah, it's going to be just a fascinating tournament. So, uh, as as we did last summer, I will be putting out, as the tournament progresses, my, my, uh, my top 10, my rankings of where everybody is. People will come in, people will come out, people will go up, people will go down, depending on what is happening on the field. And, and certainly after the first round of games, uh, that will change. I'll just give you the the latest one that we did with a couple of comments on each uh, of the teams. So I have a number 10 right now, Sweden. Uh, I think they are going to struggle to score, but I think that they will frustrate teams defensively. We all know defense wins, and so I think that's what's going to take them through. Uh, Canada at number nine, they are a one-trick pony with uh, Christine Sinclair, but uh, it's, a, it's a hell of a pony. Uh, but I don't think that ultimately Canada truly believes that they are one of the elite teams. Number eight, I got Japan. They are in the midst of this youth movement after uh, their 2018 U20 World Cup win. And I think they're they're not quite there. They need another year. And this is this interesting phenomenon because the Olympics are such a huge part of women's soccer. They're able to look forward a year to the Olympics and kind of say, that's where we we crest. And that's and so I think if you're looking at Japan right now, they're a, they're a year out. They need another year of blooding of this, this younger type of generation that's come in. Spain, you mentioned, which I think everybody's really excited to see for, because of the potential. I think they have everything but that final product. Um, they have possession. They have flair. They have courage. And if and when Spain becomes ruthless in front of goal, Look out. Everybody look out because they will be the the complete package up there. Netherlands at six, not ready for prime time back in 2015 when a lot of us were looking at it and say, hey, this is a team to watch. They weren't quite there. And since then, they have won uh, the European Champions uh, Championship. They are champions of Europe. So I think their time is now to do something right now. England. It may indeed be coming home, Mossy, uh, but if it is, uh, it's the women that are going to bring it home. Uh, there's a lot of confidence right now in this camp when it comes uh, to England. Number four, Australia, featuring the best attacking player in the world in in Sam Kerr and you know, arguably the best player in the world, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Number three, Germany. Uh, I think they're sandbagging. I think a Germany without pressure or expectations is is and should be a very scary thing to the field. Uh, look, it's Germany, so they're still going to get attention. But they're they're leading up to this. There has been this sentiment that this is uh, this is a Germany and still that's still in transition. That's not as good as they were in the past, but it's it's still Germany. So I I think Germany has a good tournament. France at number two is hosting a burden or a blessing. I say that it is ultimately a blessing and that they uh, they ride that that French wave that we are going to see here all the way to the final. USA, uh, number one. And uh, there's a reason why they're number one, because they're the champions. And uh, you come at the queen, you best not miss. There are going to be a lot of people that are going to come at the U.S. and... They are going to miss, but all it takes is one, and all it takes is one on that one moment <laughs> when you can ill afford it. And it's going to be really interesting to see this U.S. team 
from a psychological standpoint, go from let's get back and win that World Cup after so many years, which we saw in 2015, which was that incredible chip on their shoulder to get back and show that, that they could win it again, despite all the success without that ultimate moment, to now defending it. We all know in all sports, sometimes it's a whole lot harder defending your uh, your title than achieving your title. So that, that's my top 10. As I said, it'll change as we go along. So look for that going forward. Would you say the biggest overall question in this tournament is whether France have the psychological medal to win it? Because I think there's a consensus that they have the most talent with Rosemer and Ahi and Cascarino. And if they can channel the home field advantage in the right way, they probably should win this tournament. But, yeah. but a lot of people that are picking the U.S. are sort of clinging to this notion that when the going gets tough, that France will melt. And if the U.S. and France do meet in the quarterfinals, the U.S. would have that sort of psychological edge. I think there's a lot of talk about this, uh, the psychological edge or lack of psychological edge that uh, that France may or may not have. And it's 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 based on history. The amount of times, and you know, I was listening it yesterday during our rehearsals and, and going through the times that France has failed to live up to the talent that they have in quarterfinal after quarterfinal where they, they, they bow out of tournaments. And so putting it all together and having the confidence that they can put it all together means that they will have the label of chokers until they don't. And this is the perfect moment uh, for them to discard that label of, uh, of chokers. If you tune into our uh, broadcast uh, of the France-South Korea game, you will hear my uh, translation of to choke or chokers. It's a little preview of what you'll hear because it is absolutely a label that has been attached to them. Uh, and given their, their futility uh, and their history of futility when it comes to really uh, bringing it home and winning tournaments, uh, it, is, it is apt and, uh, and right. All right. So anyway, that's a, a little look at the, uh, at the field, as I said, that will, uh, that will change as we go on. Mossy, uh, let's, let's bang back and forth uh, all over the place. Is there something that you have found uh, from a cultural perspective here in, in Paris, because we've only been in Paris here, uh, that has surprised you in that you had a idea that this was the way it was going to be, and now you say, wow, I didn't realize that uh, this in Paris or this in France in general was like this? Uh, not surprised, but uh, one thing that's caught my attention is they find it very strange when you finish a meal if you ask for your check right away. There's sort of this expectation in France that you're going to lounge there for an hour and smoke a cigarette and drink wine and, and just hang out. And, you know, I've had a, some meals at restaurants that have had to be very quick. And so I sit down, I order, boom, 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 I eat, and okay, the addition. <laughs> and, uh, and they're like, oh, really? Wait, was, there, was there a problem? <laughs> uh, the other thing is, which I'm still trying to get down, is the tipping. Because evidently in this country, you don't tip nearly as much as you do in the United States. But my nature is to throw down 20%. And let's just say I've gotten a couple of very happy looks from uh, waiters. <laughs> really? Really? Now, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think last summer in uh, in Moscow, your uh, you know your, your social calendar was a topic of conversation. Uh, any any potential uh, friends out there on the horizon that you have met, either uh, at your hotel or out on the streets or anything like that? Uh, yeah, one or two targets. Nice, say, but uh, I'll I'll talk more about that as the situation progresses. I'll update you on any new developments. Wonderful. Well, this is you know this is a city of love, and uh, <laughs> you are a romantic, my friend. So I look forward to uh, to hearing how that progresses, especially with your uh, mastery of uh, of the French uh, the French language. All right, as I said, we are we are 
you know, uh, these are going to be abbreviated type of episodes, but this is a summer of soccer. And while we are here and focused and concentrated on the Women's World Cup, we also have another team when it comes to Fox that's, uh, that's back stateside getting ready to bring you the Gold Cup. Uh, we have recorded this after the latest U.S. Uh, outing when it comes to the U.S. men's national team as they prepare for the Gold Cup. And it's uh, the first... The, the first problem, will you, uh, shall we say, under the Greg Berhalter era, uh, back to reality, a loss with uh, the U.S. men's national team as they prepare for the Gold Cup against Jamaica. My, I, I, I watched the game, and my, my thoughts are that this was, uh, first and foremost, um, an experimental lineup in terms of formation and the way that Greg Berhalter played, experimental in, the, in terms of the amount of players, the personnel that he used, including some very young players, including players uh, that aren't even on the uh, Gold Cup uh, squad. So it's, it's a little difficult to judge it, but ultimately in this day and age when we were looking at the national team in the context of Cuba and losing to Trinidad and Tobago and not making the World Cup, it ultimately comes down to winning and losing, and especially winning when you're playing against inferior opposition like Jamaica. Or I guess I shouldn't even say inferior, perceived inferior opposition uh, like Jamaica. So it wasn't a good result, although there were times where I thought they actually did very, very well. Since that time, Greg Berhalter has come out with his 23. I think one of the big talking points is that Josh Sargent, a young player who had been brought into this camp, and I think everybody from the outside, including myself, thought, well, he was brought into this camp because he's going to be on the Gold Cup roster because this is a player that could also be eligible for the under-20 team uh, with Tab Ramos uh, over there in Poland that's doing great things. They're heading off to the uh, the quarterfinals after beating France, by the way. Uh, and, but, but Josh Sargent who is eligible to play on that team from an age perspective, was not on that team. And the thinking was, all right, well, this summer, we're not going to have him play in the Under-20 World Cup because he's going to play in the Gold Cup and get that type of experience. That's how good he is. No, we come to find out that Greg Berhalter has said no. He is not on the uh, Gold Cup roster to the the frustration, the consternation, uh, and the confusion of a lot of people out there. I don't have any insight as to why this ultimately happened. I'm sure that there is a reason from U.S. soccer that will come out and clarify what's going on. But uh, j just in general, when it comes to the uh, the men's game, when it comes to the U.S. in particular, any thoughts, Mossy? Yeah, Sargent occupies that weird space that players find themselves in sometimes of being almost too good to play in an under-20 World Cup, but not quite right. good enough yet to help the senior team and so but you'd like to see him have been in one of the two tournaments now as far as the under 20s Burhalter I thought gave a good explanation there is that if Sargent was was there Sebastian Soto wouldn't have gotten the opportunities that he's gotten and he's taken full advantage of it and now the U.S. has uncovered potentially another uh, very good center forward prospect so I, I think I have less of an issue with him not being with the under 20s I do think Burhalter needed to find a way to get him in the squad it would have been a good experience for him and you know, Burhalter said himself, I expect him to be our starting striker for many years to come. So if that's the case, I mean, wouldn't this be the start of that process? And this is where Ernie Stewart comes in, the, uh, the technical director for U.S. soccer. I mean, this is stuff that should have been thought about, should have been planned. And I'm not saying it, it wasn't. There might, like I said, be a legitimate reason, but you need to, un to, to have thought about it, to have communicated with his team in Germany. Uh, we know that while he played a little bit and scored a couple of goals, it wasn't a consistent type of starting position, let alone a consistent type of being in the 18 situation from, uh, from him. So he's going to go a summer 
without getting the experience of playing in an international tournament situation that I think could have made could have made him better. And that's a, that's a pity because we look at this player as a potential goal scorer for the U.S. team moving forward that can help replace the likes of uh, of Josie Altador. But not so fast, right? Now. This Jamaica result might have been a little bit of a buzzkill, but prior to it, there was starting to be some talk in U.S. soccer circles about a treble this summer, winning the Under-20 World Cup, the Women's World Cup, and the Gold Cup. Wow. Slow your roll, man. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That, that would be something. Well, this is always the case. It's, there's the gap. There's no gap. We, we, oh, my gosh. We, we don't know what we're doing. We know what we're doing. And then, you know, Tab Ramos and the, and the club uh, and the uh, under-20s get a wonderful result, wonderful fight back to beat one of the perennial powers uh, and one of the favorites when it comes to uh, the under-20 tournament in France. And now the gap's closed, and we know what we're doing. We're, we're great in development. And Tab Ramos should have been named the, uh, the, the national team coach. This is, uh, this, is what we, uh, this is what we do. But it's going to be fun to see how this under-20 team continues on through this tournament. Their next uh, opponent would, in the quarterfinals is uh, Ecuador. 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 So that'll be interesting. But th- that's that's a winnable type of game. I mean, if you can beat France, you can beat anybody, I suppose, in, in the tournament. Uh, and then from a Gold Cup perspective, uh, what ultimately this team looks like, and is it back to the usuals with uh, Josie Altador and Michael Bradley and these types of players? Uh, and players that have been with Greg Berhalter. And look, every coach has people that they like. These are human beings, and they come with all of their their baggages and their biases and their histories and stuff like that. So when Jossie Zardes gets the call over a, a Josh Sargent, people are automatically going to say, oh, it's Jossie because he played with Greg Berhalter in Columbus and that kind of stuff. When it comes to Will Trapp in the midfield who lost possession here or there, oh, you're playing him just because you played. But that's favorites and all that kind of stuff that happens in every every team every sport every coach now i'm going to be dealing with this not only with the gold cup but also the copa america with brazil because of the time difference we're going to have some crazy kickoff time for those matches yep. uh how are you going to handle that are you going to stay up and try to watch all the games i i don't know if i'm going to stay up we get the opportunity to have those in our inbox every morning after the game and which is which is how i watched it so my as i've told you before uh, routine is your friend in a world cup because you know, we're we're our, we've already gone been working for a week and yet we haven't even had a game yet and so we're here for almost six weeks day in and day out it is a groundhog day type of existence it's the best groundhog day that you could ever live but having that routine and that ritual is important it doesn't it doesn't mean you don't enjoy and then have a good time and but so for me I get up uh, I go for a run I have been running along the Seine uh, the uh, the river down there is absolutely beautiful with all the different bridges out there. And I go up and, and down. I run right in front uh, of the Eiffel Tower, right in front of our set, and go up uh, and a couple bridges up, a couple bridges down, and then make a, a big loop. I do that every morning. So get my workout in, uh, in, in the morning, watch the game. Uh, if it happened overnight, prepare and uh, do all that. And get ready for the day, however long it would be. First uh, game is just one, or first day is just one game, and then we get into the three games, which is a little bit longer of a grind. It's not a grind. I, I look, there are people that would kill or die to be in in my position, and you can you can pry it from my cold dead hands. I'm not going to let it go, but I do recognize how privileged and uh, what a, what a uh, how incredibly lucky I am to be able to do this. So while it's a grind, it's not a grind at all relative to what many people are doing uh, doing out there. You know, the word for river is fleuve, 
and I've been saying Flovsen, and they correct me. They say it's just Sen. It's like a Brazilian soccer player. It just it, goes. It's, by it one transcends name. the actual yes. word of it. It's it's just it's referred to it as Sen, not Sen, because basically it is the only uh, and certainly the best river in the world. It is it, it is breathtaking uh, to to run up and you know see the Louvre. You can actually see the, uh, the spire of Notre Dame uh, in the very back distance. Here's a, here's a little uh, tip. If you see Kelly Smith on our uh, uh, on our coverage, her one shot, which is the camera shot that just has her in the frame, if and when they switch to that, that's the only shot on our set where off in the distance over her shoulder you can actually see Notre Dame. They were telling me that last night. Obviously, the, the Eiffel Tower is is right behind all of us. You can and you can see that, but the the escape and the uh, the background that we have. There's a lot of interesting, interesting things. What else, Mossy? Anything else before we head off? Well, I, I passed by Notre Dame on my cruise of La Seine. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, there was more of it. I felt good. There was more of it preserved than I thought, and they're hard at work rebuilding it. So I think we're going to be okay there. I was very sad when that happened, obviously, recently. and But uh, I think they're going to be able to build that back up and restore that. Have you been to the Louvre? Did you say you went to the Louvre? No, I actually went to Paris with my dad two years ago, and we did the Louvre, so I might just do the Orsay this time. Which is what? Which is the other, uh, it's a famous impressionist uh, museum, uh, so I'm going to do that. All right, well, listen, uh, we wanted to get uh, a, a, an abbreviated pod out there for you. We appreciate uh, your patience, and uh, as we know in the podcasting world, consistency is your friend, consistency is what people want. We apologize for messing with your routine out there because I know a lot of people listen to this, you know, as it comes out on a on a Tuesday, and they listen to it and they incorporate it into their into their week. And we will try to do as many of these as possible, and to bring you into what's happening over here, what's happening around the Women's World Cup. But it won't just be Women's World Cup uh, focused. That will certainly be a big focus because of what we're doing. We'll find out how uh, Mossy's. Uh, Love life goes on over here in uh, in uh, the romantic city of uh, Paris as he continues on with his uh, his language studies and everything else. And most importantly, we will have a whole lot of soccer to talk about as this uh, World Cup uh, kicks off. It's it's in, it's going to be interesting, and I'll, and I'll leave you with this: a World Cup is a oftentimes a evolving type of tournament, and it's sometimes it's a, a slow burn. And there hasn't been, I'll be honest with you, a whole lot around the city that I have seen in terms of advertising and in terms of fever pitch with regards to the Women's World Cup. That's not to say that it can't turn on a dime. And with the host nation starting it off uh, on Friday night, it's going to be interesting to see the reaction. The stadium would be sold out, but you also want the city to embrace it and be excited about it. I think that our set in that environment will continue to attract a lot of people and it'll be interesting to see as this World Cup continues on what the reaction is from the, not just the Parisians but France in general for their team and the appetite for this tournament and the excitement and the patriotism and all that. And then for me, one of the best things and one of the really fun things about broadcasting a World Cup back home is the way that our set becomes a personality and becomes this, you know, part of an iconic place where people start to visit. Because I know a lot of people come over as the tournament, a lot of people from the U.S. come over as the tournament progresses at different times. And to see the, the pilgrimage that often happens, and this happened when I was in 
Brazil, for example, uh, for the for the men's World Cup. This happened certainly last summer at the at at, uh, at Red Square, and I know it's going to happen here. People are going to come want to come over and see what it's like. So don't hesitate to scream and yell. Uh, at uh, the back of my head as we are working there on the set. Come on by. Let us know where you're from. It's always fun to see uh, Americans who are uh, taking in the sights and the sounds of the World Cup uh, and the sights and sounds of just one of the incredible cities in the world in Paris. Mossy, anything before we go? Nope. All right. We will see you again uh, next time from Paris, France, the location uh, the Women's World Cup. All right. Size the day. 